When the DM gets a hardware upgrade. When the Guildmaster's plans are set into motion. When the Golden Child comes of age. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Lennon, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Astron. And I'm Ryu. And this is the 50th entry into our Chronicle, recorded on Saturday, November 24th, and released Wednesday, November 28th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ryu, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? For our adventurers pack this week, Ostron introduces us to his favorite Viking lumberjacks. Next, we check out some D&D news as we uncover calendars, sweaters, dragon hordes, and rule books all competing for your hard-earned dollars. And our rundown of the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. After that, we take a short rest and continue our D&D retrospective series with a look at the Golden Child of D&D, edition 3.5, before finally looking into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. And that takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurous packs. You always carry this much in your bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid roll for. So, in our previous actual episode, Lennon covered something that uh, only applies to those listeners fortunate enough to have their very own 3D printer or ready access to one. And I'm going to continue in that vein, not necessarily focusing on people who only have a 3D printer, but more focusing on people who have a decent amount of disposable income. Dogmite Gaming, uh, located at www.dogmite.com, is a company that, uh, like many specialty niche product developers, seems to have gotten their start a lot on Kickstarter and occasionally support themselves with various crowdfunding things. But uh, they now have a fully running web store where they produce a variety of different accessories that are useful for tabletop gaming. In particular, a lot of their products are very useful for playing D&D or other tabletop role-playing games. When you first land at the site, you might think that it is very similar to Wormwood Gaming, and you wouldn't be entirely wrong. However, uh, my own personal opinion is that Dogmite, while somewhat comparable in price a lot of the time, I think offers a lot more value for what they produce. There are some deals that can be found if you compare individual items between Dogmite and Wormwood, which I'm just using as an example because it's what most people go to when they think of uh, wooden hand-carved gaming accessories that sort of hurt the wallet a bit. In general, uh, Dogmite stick is wooden hand-carved accessories like accessory boxes, dice boxes, rolling trays, uh, and a few other things that are made out of wood, and they also feature carving, both inlaid carving in the item itself, as well as very intricately carved uh, reliefs that go on top of and raise out of the items that are ordered. 
so there are quite a few different options. I am going to focus first on the DM screens because these are extremely impressive. They're a three panel screen. Each one has three 12 by nine inch panels. Uh, and that means you can put a full piece of paper, uh, landscape or sideways, and it'll fill up the back of the screen. Uh, but behind the screen, there are a bunch of different options for accessories that can just be attached directly to them. There are little pegs and slots that are designed by default, and the company provides a bunch of different accessories that can go in there. Those include uh, small trays that you can put models on, plastic screens that can either act as paper holders or dry erase boards or both. They even have pen holders and small dice towers that you can attach to the back of the screen. Uh, and the dice towers themselves have a transparent uh, plastic frontage so you can see the dice rolling as they fall down. The tops of the screens are inlaid with a groove and they provide plastic dry erase tokens that you can stick in to provide an initiative tracker on the top of the screen. But the really impressive part of these screens is the fronts. By default, they just come with flat wood. However, if you order them, you can get a design that goes across the entire front of the screen. And they have about 15 to 20 different options, all of which are very impressive in my opinion. There are a couple of different dragons for those who like to follow Ryu in her obsession. Uh, there are also your standard uh, Cthulhu options and other fantastic beasts such as Dracoliches, and you can also do full scenery pieces. Like they have one that makes the front look like castle walls. They have another one where it's filled with cogs and gears and uh, a couple of other thematic options. In addition to choosing the design on both their DM screens and a bunch of other products. So in addition, Dogmite offers a selection of different woods, not only for their DM screens, but with basically all of their products. Uh, you can get your standard like dark mahogany or light softwood like you would see in most furnitures. However, they also have a few more exotic options such as wood that is bright red or deep blue or even a rainbow pattern. The other product I want to touch on very briefly is something they call their Game Master System, which is a small box uh, that you can disassemble and turn into sort of a miniature DM screen. You can customize it a couple of different ways, but the base option provides the box, which turns into a rolling tray for your dice. Uh, it has a container for the dice that slots into the box when it's not in use. And there's two sort of one-third size screens that you can perch on the edges of the box. And those act much like the DM screen. You can put uh, dry erase plastic on them, slot things, uh, slot pieces of paper into them, and they have grooves on the top for the dry erase initiative trackers. So if you're a DM who travels a lot or doesn't have a regular place to meet, that might be a better option. It provides the same sort of coverage without the 
bulk of carrying around a full DM screen. I mentioned customization. There are a lot of customization options on most of their products, including custom engraving. Uh, so that's another option. Now, the most obvious downside, as I mentioned, you can find some deals that set Dogmite apart from Wormwood. And as I said, I I personally believe Dogmite's quality and options are superior to Wormwood's. However, in general, you're still looking at probably dropping at least $100 as soon as you add an item to your cart. And the more customizations you throw in, obviously the price climbs very quickly. Uh, it would be very easy to run up a cart that's north of $500 basically without noticing. Really, there's only one other big downside I can see, which is that they offer dice along with um, all of their other products, but the dice seem to be, again, just a bunch of options from Chessex catalogs, so you could probably go over to the Chessex main site and find the dice for possibly cheaper, but at least the same price. Mostly it's a convenience thing you can order them together with whatever accessory you're getting. Also, on occasion, they offer dice for free with orders of a certain type or a certain amount. As I'm recording this, the site has uh, some Black Friday sales going on. Uh, based on their advertising, that will unfortunately probably be done by the time this show releases, but it's always possible they will have extended it past uh, officially Cyber Monday. Also, something that will still be going on, they are currently holding a contest to give away one of their Dungeon Master screens valued at about $400. And all that's required is apparently just entering your email address. So if you want to try your luck there, then you that's an option for you. I'd rather you all didn't because the more people that sign up, the less chances I have to win. But um, other than that, yeah, really good site, very, very nice products. And if you can spare the money to uh, order one of them, I think you'd be very pleased. These look extremely well made. Yeah, they they are hefty bits of wood. I mean, I've, I don't know if you've ever um, handled the Wormwood stuff in person or whether you've just you know, seen if so. I actually bought a uh, Wormwood dice rolling tray for uh, a friend of mine for his birthday, um, and it w it was decently made. Don't get me wrong, but it didn't necessarily feel substantial. These screens look chunky, and they look like Ryu said, incredibly well made. Yeah, the first thought that entered my head when I saw one, other than, oh my god, that's an awesome design on the front, is that if you folded that thing up, you'd have a decent self-defense item right there, because <laughs> those look like solid pieces. Yeah, that's at least a D8, if not a D10 bludgeoning damage, this thing, yeah. if you were to clown <clears throat> someone with it. I also really like the design. I actually prefer a lot of this stuff to the Wormwood stuff. I mean, it, it's just... Yeah, like you said, the the level of detail that you can get on them, and they've got like reliefs on the outside. It's not just flat carvings, or it's not just engraving or embossing. It's really, really nice stuff. I'm actually very impressed by the wood stains that they have on offer, especially the colored ones. Some of them actually look like stonework because of the way that the colors mm. meld together. 
I'm finding this whole site extremely impressive and wishing that I had more money to spend on some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing that's making me a bit hesitant is that it is, like you said, you're looking at a minimum, from what I can see, about $100, $150 to get a decent uh, DM screen or the, the GM system. Uh, you're looking at about 200 250 and then if you're not American, shipping on top is near enough another $100. Right, yeah, The I mean, unfortunately, the DM screens, when you first look, it's they go, oh, well, it starts at $100. Yeah, but that's for basically three pieces that's of wood and hinges. Wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As soon as you stick any sort of design on the back, you're adding at least another $100, and then the accessories pile onto that. So it's, um, I mean, you can... You can skimp a little bit, like, you don't necessarily have to get their initiative trackers. You can probably make your own that will work just as well. Um, Just, you know, go to a hardware store and get some balsa wood or, you know, find somewhere that you can cut up some plastic. You're still talking a minimum of, like, two to three hundred dollars for one of their nicer screens. But like I said, it's sort of like... If you already have it in your mind that you want to get an accessory like this, I feel that this is a better option than some of the others that I've seen. Yeah, I think this is definitely definitely better than the Wormwood stuff, in my opinion. I mean, just I, I know that I was saying how, how intricate the carvings were, and I've mentioned how it's like an actual relief on the front, but it's not just the front, it's also the top and sides, and you could probably just open up the DM screen, especially I'm just looking at the Valhalla one, just for reference, and you could just open that up and have it on your wall as a piece of art. It is genuinely that good. Agreed. Yeah, that extends to all their other stuff. Like, the they have dice rolling trays, and... The sides all have relief carvings on the edges and the the feet, because they actually have feet, are mm. metal. I don't even know what to call that because I'm not a cabinet maker, but they have little metal stands that metal keep it. Metal feet. Yeah, metal feet that keep it above the table. It is it is it is seriously impressive stuff. It uh, unlike the wormwood stuff. The wormwood stuff I felt was overpriced for what it was, but you were getting something that was wooden and it was kind of a like a premium D&D product. But this even though it's expensive, I genuinely feel is worth every penny that you're paying for it. All right, so with that, is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? Let us know about it by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. This past fortnight in D&D news, yes, fortnight being the British term for two weeks, not fortnight the sort of battle royale thing. Anyway, there's been somewhat of a flurry of bits and pieces, and we still want to talk about the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, so in brief... ThinkGeek have launched a couple of new official D&D items. Firstly, there's a 16-month calendar for 2019 and the last four months of 2018, featuring art from official publications and the calendar itself resembling a 5th edition-style character sheet. For only $14.99 US dollars, you'll finally have something you can hang on your wall to schedule that one game this year where everyone's available at the same time. Totally worth it. Next in their collection is a D&D holiday sweater in the now traditionally ugly style. 
also known for those of you who follow textile circles as the Fair Isle pattern. There are polearms, staves, d20s, class icons, and of course the D&D ampersand. Priced at $29.99 US dollars and currently out of stock, you could get yourself double the nerd cred in the office this year, firstly for the ugly Christmas sweater, and secondly for having to explain to people that it's also D&D. Two books that we'd covered previously entitled The ABCs and 123s of D&D are now out and available at all good bookstores near you. Written by Ivan Van Norman and illustrated by Caleb Cleveland, these cutesy, cartoony-style books are full of rhyming couplets and are read-aloud friendly. They also help kids learn the alphabet whilst also giving them a good primer on beholders, which is absolutely key to starting off their adventuring life right. Both the ABCs and the 123s weigh in at $14.99 US each, and as mentioned, can be found at your local Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, or Amazon. Speaking of official merchandise, we're just going to let Ryu quietly coo in the corner on this one, but on the For Fans by Fans website, you can now get yourself a Dragon's Horde Dice Bag. This plush, velvety accessory for holding a good few handfuls of dice comes complete with the cutest sleeping dragon you've ever laid your adventuring eyes on, and its wings form part of the drawstring, keeping your precious horde of dice that always roll natural ones completely safe. Designed by Quiet Snooze, which is an apt name as that's exactly what the dragon is doing, these dice bags will be made only in a limited run and are available for pre-order now for $25, US and are Estimated to ship early February, making the perfect gift for that dragon-obsessed loved one in your life, or, you know, your favourite D&D podcast host over there coming in the corner. Just saying. And finally, before we get on to Ravnica, the D&D Core Rules gift set has been unleashed. Available in both standard cover and hobby store exclusive options and priced at $169.95 US dollars, each set contains the player's handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, the Monster Manual, and the official Wizards of the Coast DM screen. Alongside the Core Rules gift set, we were also treated to a new and updated copy of the Errata for each publication. There's not a lot that's new and noteworthy, after all this is the 10th edition of the Errata, so one would hope they found most of the major issues by this point. Most of the player's handbook changes consist of minor textual changes and class descriptions, so for example, whereas before it would have said your spells, it now reads your bard spells, or your wizard spells, etc. The Dungeon Master's Guide is also relatively unchanged, but in the Monster Manual, the Purple Worm on page 255 has had a bit of buff to its bite and tail stinger attacks. Each attack used to be a plus 9 to hit, which has now been upped to a plus 14. So lots of minor little things there coming out, lots of products to buy, kind of, you know, as if we're heading into some sort of, uh, you know, period where we may need to give each other gifts and the like. I can't think what, what? that could possibly be. But <laughs> um, yeah, a couple of things there. Did any of these catch your eyes in particular, you guys? Well, I have already pre-ordered that dice bag. I did it the second well, Ostron sent me the link. <laughs> I'm an um, enabler, what can I say? <laughs> well, yeah, after that last segment as well. Jeez. Yeah. That's, well, that was more for you, but... I did see the holiday sweaters, and they do look amusing. It's sort of a shame that they're out of stock, because I don't imagine... I mean, since office Christmas parties tend to happen at least a week or so before the actual holiday i find it unlikely these will be back in stock in time for anyone to get one but as ugly christmas sweaters go they did give me a nice uh, little smirk when i saw them 
I had pre-ordered the ABCs and 123s books back in, I want to say it was August when they were available for pre-order. And I got them recently, and we've been reading them to our littles for the past several nights. And the very first night, they asked to read it again the next night. Well, that's pretty much a glowing endorsement right there. Yeah, they're so, they're pretty I, good. Although D was for Dungeon Master and not for Dragons. I think they messed right, up there. That was there. literally going to be my question there. <laughs> was, uh, was R for Red Dragon, though? Uh, I'm trying to remember what R was for. Uh, the, the book is in my children's room, and I would have to disturb yeah, don't risk it. I would have don't to disturb their slumber to go get it <laughs> yeah. and uh, I don't really want but to do that are, right now. There are a lot of other options they could have gone with like Rogue Ranger things like that. Rakshasa. <laughs> uh, more outside the box but still possible I suppose. Yeah. Was B for Beholder. See now I don't even remember what any of them were. <laughs> Alright well right. let's let's hope the children learned more than we It wasn't did. Beholder though. <laughs> It wasn't for Beholder. I remember that. A was for Adventure. Z was for Zeal. B was for Bard. Y was for Yes, which all DMs should say, which I don't agree uh, with. <laughs> I'm I'm shocked. I, was gonna say, I, I thought I thought it was Yes, but <laughs> that's the key phrase. Yeah. So Lennon. Yes. I know you expressed interest in the revised hobby store covers for the core yes. rule books. Um, are mm. you picking those up or not? I hope to. I probably won't get it um, on this release. As far as I can tell, even though it's a hobby store release, it's not a limited quantity, mm -hmm. unlike they've done with the other books. Um, they they do look really nice. Like I said, my, my main issue is that being... Um, I think OCD is probably too big a term to apply to it, but where I got the Player's Handbook Monster Manual Dungeon Master's Guide in the sort of standard 5th edition style, because they didn't have anything else, when they started releasing the hobby store covers of Xanathar's Guide and Mordenkainen's and Volos, I I ordered them because I, I wanted them as like the pre-release, but then I would wait until a friend of mine ordered the standard covers and then we'd swap. So all of my books are standard covers now. Had I known that they were doing this with the core rule set, there is no way in heck I would have let those hobby store <laughs> covers go because now I can't get them back unless I, you know, bribe him heavily with pizza or something. But um, that's the only thing that's actually, like, holding me back on that. They they are really good-looking books, though, and it's it's that, um, that, like they've done for the hobby store releases, you know, it's that kind of intricate artwork and it's got patterns in it and it just looks uh, kind of... I don't want to say like a tarot deck, but it's kind of got that sort of vibe to it. You know what I mean? Like uh -huh. on the on the backside of cards, what that sort of looks like. So yeah, maybe. And I was thinking the initially I looked at one hundred and sixty nine ninety five, and I thought I could get myself a Dogmite DM screen for twice that. Um, but then <laughs> I realized that actually, you know, you're getting the three books which retail for about forty five dollars each anyway, um, plus the DM screen. So it's actually not too bad for a complete set, in my opinion. Speaking of new products, we actually didn't talk about, and I was just wondering if you guys had seen the tactical maps reincarnated. Yeah, these are, um, they're kind of like reissuings of the fourth edition flip mats, I think, aren't they? If that's the product that I'm thinking of. Looks like it. Yeah, which is similar. The, I mean, I can see why they'd be grouped together because the dungeon tiles, I believe, were originally a fourth edition release. 
Right, and the maps and miscellany packs have been coming out with the more recent source books are obviously proving quite popular just going by general feel out in the uh, out in the interwebs. Um, as for getting a pack of these flip mats, um, I, I'm not necessarily sure that the D&D ones are going to be any better than the ones that you can get elsewhere because they are pretty generic overall, I think. So personally, I probably wouldn't get them just purely because I've got other things. Like I've got the um, Arknight dry erase maps and there's a whole ton of Pathfinder ones that are just as generic that you can use that tend to run a little bit cheaper than the official D&D ones, I think. Briefly touching on the errata, the purple worm change I thought was interesting because they jacked up the to hit on two of its primary attacks, but they didn't touch the challenge rating, which either means they thought it was too weak for the challenge rating that it was given, or or they've just decided, you know what, challenge rating meant absolutely nothing useful before, it still doesn't mean anything useful now, (laughs) so we're not going to bother touching it. Yeah, it could be a bit of that. I haven't actually had a chance to compare it to um, other comparable challenge rating type monsters to see if the to hit is within the same sort of range but i do think that that's actually you know quite a bit of a buff to go from a plus nine to a plus 14 that's gonna i think seriously catch some adventurers off guard if they you know come again up against them before and then suddenly find them to be a lot tougher yeah if you assume that most adventurers are going to have an 18 or 19 ac if they're in the front lines then right. this means you've effectively changed it so that instead of a 50-50 chance to hit, the Purple Worm now has a 75% chance to hit, which, like you said, is not an insignificant change. Yeah, you've gone from hitting 1 in 2 to hitting 3 in 4. So that's pretty pretty good. But they didn't change the damage output, right? No. No. I would be more worried about that than the two hit. The thing with the purple worm, though, is if its bite hits, there's a good chance you're going down the throat. So that's the bigger, <laughs> yeah, it's a bigger issue. It's kind of noms time at that point, and this has just made it that the adventurers are more likely to get ingested than they were before. I'm just going off the one time that my gaming group has encountered a purple worm, and I'm pretty sure we killed it before it had a chance to try to attack us. So I didn't, I wasn't terribly impressed by it. Well, next time you encounter one, just be a little bit more cautious, (laughs) I think. All right, on to Ravnica. So it was released digitally and in hobby stores on November 9th alongside Dungeon of the Mad Mage, but has, as of November 20th, seen the general release available at big box retailers everywhere. Now, despite the hype surrounding this tome, it's worth remembering that this isn't a totally new concept. Wizards of the Coast has been testing the waters on a Magic the Gathering crossover in 5th edition for a while now by releasing the Plane Shift series. In fact, on the Wizards of the Coast website or the Dungeon Masters Guild, you can actually pick up a copy of the plane shift settings for free this is just simply the first time they've made a printed book release out of it that said this time around wizard seems to have upped the ante 
The book is 256 pages of crossover goodness, with most of that space taken up describing the guild system in Ravnica and the structure of the city. As promised, there is a copious amount of art throughout, with creature and setting illustrations on most pages. Now, some people who have a magic card collection that includes things from Ravnica will notice some repurposed art, but there are a number of new elements too, particularly if you grab the accompanying maps and miscellany pack. Beyond the aesthetics, there are some mechanical goodies for players and DMs to sink their sheets into. The Unearthed Arcana races and classes from the past few months have made it into this printing, including Minotaur and Centaur playable races, though the Centaur are no longer infinitely stackable, as well as the Circle of Spore Druid and the Order Domain Cleric. The Bestiary has over 70 brand new creatures if you include the Guildmaster NPCs, and there are a decent showing of higher CR creatures to use against advanced characters, particularly if they group up. There are also 16 new magic items available, and though most of them are described as being specific to a guild, it is still possible for most of them to exist as items apart from the setting of Ravnica or a guild system. Befitting the guild-centric environment of Ravnica, a lot of the Guildmaster's Guide is given over to descriptions of the guilds and the mechanics of joining them, which are not insignificant. Just joining a guild gives the players access to a guild-specific spell list, and Ravnica expands greatly on the renown system that was touched upon in Waterdeep Dragonheist. In Ravnica, increased renown with a guild gets you access to guild-specific magic items and minions of various strengths that you can simply summon due to your influence. At the same time, the guilds don't mix, so the rules as presented prevent a scenario where one character can join all of the guilds and decaduple dip on renown and special magic items. However, while individual characters can't join more than one guild, working with other guilds or guild members is definitely on the table. If you follow the Guildmaster's Guide's tables for creating a character background, it's assumed a character will have at least one contact from another guild. Also, the profiles of each guild includes a matrix of what a guild's attitude is toward all the other Ravnican guilds, so a roleplay-conscious player or canon-adherent DM can accurately represent an appropriate attitude if there are NPCs or other players from differing guilds. Even if you're trying to roleplay, though, you aren't locked out of interactions with certain guilds. The guide suggests each guild has rebellious elements that constantly challenge the guild's status quo and encourage new ideas. So there was a lot in this book there's the npcs uh, or the bestiary um you've got the guild system which expands upon the renown uh there's obviously the fact that this is a, a wholly urban setting which yes we've had water deep dragon heist but this is you know something more technological something more advanced um yeah what were your guys favorite parts of this i do want to add before we get there it's also a different kind of urban uh, than right, that's, Waterdeep that's what Dragon. I mean. Uh, yeah, because Waterdeep is more like fantasy urban. This is much closer to what we would think of as an actual urban city with like towering buildings and right. dark alleyways. It very much felt to me very like science fantasy almost. Yeah, and some, I mean, that is sort of the world that Magic the Gathering subsists in is more mm. of a magic science fantasy type thing. Yeah, like if you um there's there's bound to be comparisons drawn to Coruscant with, you know, a city-wide planet of this scale, but even so it did really like strike me as that kind of city. And so I I don't want to sort of say that it effectively is Coruscant, but it it really does, you know, if you're familiar with the Star Wars mythos, um I did feel a lot of that in there. 
I think my favorite part so far is the magic items, and that might come from not getting as many magic items as I did in previous editions in 5th edition, but the way that they describe some of the magic items, or at least the desirability of some of the magic items is very interesting to me. So for example, it says the items shown here are particularly prized and even coveted by the guilds. Word of the discovery of a holy adventure, for example, can mobilize a whole Boros garrison to search for it. Yeah, the holy avenger being a um I think it's it's legendary rank, mm-hmm. isn't it? If rank is the right term here. Rarity. Mm-hmm. Um and it's the uh, it's the sort of stereotypical paladin sword, I think, where it's got like it almost looks like wings for a uh, for a guard and that sort of thing. Right, but like even though that that's a magic item that we already know about in fifth edition, or really in mm. any edition, I think there are a lot of NPCs, and I a lot is probably not completely accurate, but there are several NPCs that will have holy avengers in even the official D&D modules, but they don't have people coming after them to try to grab it from them and take it away. And that's kind of how I feel like these magic items are seen by the guilds. Yeah, somebody has to secure them, but once they're secured, it's sort of assumed that's where they live. Right. But, like, for example, if you're not part of the Demir guild and you've come across a Cloak of Invisibility... You're suddenly going to have people after you when they find out that you've got one. Right. It's it's almost, I mean, it is sort of like a a gang system, um, if you will. It's like, these things belong to this group of people. And if you have one and you're not part of that group, you are in trouble. Right. Where it's like, you know, somebody in a normal D&D world you know, you find a ring of protection and you're like, oh, this is neat. I have a ring of protection. In this one, I feel like somebody who's living in the city, if they find a ring of protection, their first instinct is going to be, oh, crap, there is going to be somebody at my door looking for this within the next week. I have to get rid of it. Right. I think it adds I think it adds quite a bit of suspense and yeah. uh, role playability. Yeah. And, and I feel like with this... It adds a lot more opportunity for the characters to find themselves in a a fugitive scenario a lot more easily because a lot of exactly. the it, a lot of the scenarios in for lack of a better term normal D and D there isn't really a central authority that you have to worry about in this one there's ten so yeah. <laughs> right. Speaking of the magic items, um, anybody who's seen the cover for the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica that has the woman with the big sort of uh, magic punk um, electrostatic thing going through and the apparatus on her body, um, there is actually uh, stats for that in the Guildmaster's Guide. It's uh, a bit of um, technology by uh, one of the guilds, um, and it's called Mizium. Um, at least that, that's how I think you're supposed to pronounce it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, really it's, by at this the, point. it's made by the Izzet Guild, which are the yeah. the ones that Ryu likes, because they're like, hey, that does something interesting. Poke it and see what happens. 
<laughs> right, right. Um, but yes, you can um, basically this effectively it becomes like your spell casting focus and lets you do additional spells that you wouldn't necessarily have on your list or have prepared or, or whatever. Um, and you get to sort of have this like Magitech stuff on you, which again I think that that's a really cool addition. And it doesn't have anything to do with your obsession with Eberron at all. Well, the, the fact that this can be easily transplanted is literally by the by. I mean, there is so much from... No, genu- genuinely, the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, even if you aren't going to use it within Ravnica or within Eberron, you can just, through tweaking a couple of little things, pretty much pick it up and transplant it anywhere that you like. And I'm not even going to talk about how you could use mood mark paint to have a dragon mark tattoo i'm just not even gonna do that because that would just be crossing too many streams right but to your point in a larger sense there is a lot of stuff in this book yes you can just steal wholesale and put wherever you want i think you could even like if you strip out some of the local flavor a lot of the guilds are easily transplantable to other areas um particularly things like the I mean, the Gruul clans are just a huge conglomeration of ogres and giants and druids and berserkers that, like, they would basically be usable anywhere because they're, they're generic, but at the same, but only in the sense of they use more generic creatures. They don't have a lot of stuff that specifically flavors them in Magic the Gathering. Um, like some of the other ones, um, like what's the what's the lawkeeper guild? Yeah, this is this is where you're going to test our knowledge, and I haven't absorbed enough of it. Is that is that the Azorius? Yes, yeah, yeah. The the Azorius Senate. Yeah, the Azorius yeah. Senate. A lot of them are Vidalkin. Obviously, a lot harder to pull them out of Ravnica with and with having to work around the lack of that race, but. Um, the Gruul clan is really easy to pull out. Um, the cult of Radco- or Rakdos is another one. Yeah, um, uh, Celestia as well. You could, with a little bit of tweaking, because that, that's effectively just a sort of giant elvish healers guild, right? right? And the Golgari swarm are largely just an undead. Oh, they're like the scavengers, aren't they? Yeah, is that the one? they're like undead yeah. scavengers um, that subsist in the sewers, and they're another one you could just you know instead of the sewers put them in the underdark or wherever i really liked specifically this description of what they call the rubble belt it's apparently right this yeah. whole section of the city that is just ruined and hasn't been rebuilt and it's barely habitable and still has streets but only in the sense that like these are areas where the rubble isn't quite as dense and I feel like that's a a very interesting addition to the setting because it gives you a way to have dangerous wilderness despite the fact that the entire planet is covered in a city so I thought that was a very clever bit of lore that presents a similar type of setting but with a completely different aesthetic layered over it and it also provides a lot of interesting uh, opportunities for different adventuring mishaps like you know your advent- the party's adventuring 
in the rubble belt end up fighting. Somebody casts a thunder spell. It collapses a building. Suddenly they're like 20 stories underground and have to find their way back to the surface. I'm just scribbling down ideas for an adventure you may have just given me. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, speaking about things that you can nick from these publications, though, um, Ryu, how do you feel about the five-headed dragon gargantuan fiendish type entity known as Tiamat? Um... I mean, she's evil. <laughs> right, but you know, as as a as a draconic type person yourself, um, the where, where I'm basically going with this is, I think the bestiary in the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica is, for me, almost worth buying the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica alone. There are some fantastic creatures in here with some pretty uh, unique abilities that. I, I don't think a lot of players will necessarily see coming, and one of my favourite is the gargantuan dragon Niv-Mazet. If for nothing else than the fact that it has a 30 intelligence score, which makes it more intelligent than Tiamat. That is true. Yeah, Tiamat only has a 26. Although, let's remember, Tiamat did sign some sort of a deal that trapped her in the Nine Hells, so... There's got to be yeah. some mental deficiency <laughs> there somewhere. Yeah, admittedly, Tiamat is is wiser than Niv-Mizet with a uh, 26 versus a 17. Niv-Mizet to me, um, so challenge rating 26, which I know Ostron thinks that that means absolutely diddly squat, but I just thought well, I'd no, you know, bring I mean, it up. <laughs> as, as a, when you go down to individual, I think challenge rating starts to lose its meaning. When you're talking orders of magnitude... If you've right, got a challenge okay. rating that's higher than the characters can possibly level, that should tell you about the class of creature right. you're dealing with. As far as the actual stats, then I would say Niv-Mazet has a lot of things that are higher than Tiamat, but as far as damage done and other special things that Tiamat can do... Tiamat kind of blows him out of the water. Yeah, I mean, Tiamat has a lot of, um, like, legendary resistances and, and bits and pieces like that. And like you said, it's stat-wise, I think it's relatively on par. The challenge rating for Tiamat is a 30, though, versus Niv-Mizet's 26. That's true. Um, but Niv-Mizet, the, the fact that it's got... Um, I know that Tiamat is a spellcaster as well, but a lot of the actions in Tiamat was like, uh, uses the tail, uses frightful head presence, uses uh, claws, multi-attack. Nivmazet actually has an entire spell list that, I see that. It, he is able to, to cast. And that for me just kind of speaks more true to how I always uh, like to use dragons in adventures as being natural spellcasters. Agreed. You know, Tiamat can do, I think it's Divine Word, was basically her, her like, named spell. Yep. Um, but Niv-Mizet has a full, like, level one through level nine uh, spell list, which is just fantastic. And this is a good example of a creature that you could pick up and just drop into any adventure that you like. I do agree with that. I liked Trastani, who is in the Celestia NPCs because 
that particular creature is a very high-level fae, almost like a fae god, which only challenge rating 18, so not at the same level as the dragons or Tiamat, but it's a different type of high-level creature that I don't think there have been a lot of, because mm, yeah. I feel like Tristani could very easily be used as a nature guardian or some kind of some kind of forest god with a lot of the abilities that it has access to yeah and i think even if you were to come down the challenge rating scale a bit um you got things like the flying horror which is only a challenge rating three so it's you know pretty easy going quite low level um but the abilities that it's got on there, I mean, it's got a plus seven to hit on its basic claw attack, which is for a challenge rating three, pretty substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just the the description of them and the way that you can use them are just. We've got obviously expanded bestiaries in Volo's Guide and Mordekindness and Mephos, but I feel grabbing them from Magic the Gathering and bring them over has just added like another edge. Maybe it's just a, a different. Um, creative team behind them or something but there was just something about the bestiarian guild masters guy that really grabbed my attention have you checked out the archon of the triumvirate i i have and i really like it and i may actually be stealing that for an adventure um which is why i wasn't bringing it up just in case any of my players are listening but yeah that is <laughs> that is okay, a really I good uh, i won't talk about its really cool legendary action then yeah i mean you you could <laughs> if you wanted to you could say that it's got the really uh, really cool legendary action of teleporting its steed and mount to the same plane that it's on, or were you going to talk about the smite? Or I actually tension? was talking about the rejoin mount. I thought that was yeah. pretty neat. It's, uh, if, if the Archon isn't mounted, just poof, the steed appears. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's it. That is literally well, it. it's the other way around. It magically teleports to its steed. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like the old spice, I'm on a horse type. It's, you know, a little bit... <laughs> The other way around on that one um but yeah e- even then you know the uh the archon has like just to, just to kind of demonstrate it you get a lot of monsters that have things like frightful presence especially dragon types um archon of the triumvirate being a lawful neutral has something called pacifying presence which you know it's only just a slight alteration of the abilities and i think what they did here ostron is they listened to uh the uh, short rest that we did once where we basically said, you know, take a good NPC and just flick some of the abilities to be evil. They've basically taken an evil NPC and flick some of the abilities to be good, still having the same effect. So I'm going to claim that we invented this one. I'm okay with that. But actually, no, our problem was that, hey, we need somebody for evil characters to fight. And there are in it, I mean, the Archon of the Triumvirate is a a high level like this is the end of it. But there are a lot of creatures that are presented that fill that sort of niche where we need an objectively good or at the very least neutral leaning good creature to have the characters or have the players fight and there are quite a few new options in that vein that Ravnica presents I as well I mean you probably guessed this because they involve tables by default, but I was really <laughs> amused by the crisis. Right, yes, yeah. Which is 
basically each creature, and there's there's three categories with challenge ratings of one, six, and sixteen, and each one has a basic stat block, um, and basic attacks and stuff. But then you just use these rolling tables to pile on other abilities that the creature has, and. I can just imagine driving a group of players absolutely nuts with this because you can no have... No two would ever be the same. Yeah, it's like you have three creatures that objectively look the same and one has acidic skin. One of them is able to grapple on hits and then the third one suddenly can fly and after <laughs> like six different groups where none of them are ever doing the same thing. The players are just going to lose their minds trying to figure out how to effectively fight against these people. Um, and again, these are another creature that you can pick up and place anywhere else because all of the abilities that these creatures can inherit are things that D&D creatures have had for a while. Um, they're all, most of them are just um, attributes that have shown up in creature stat blocks. So if you set up, if you don't do it in Ravnica, you can set up like, you know, a Island of Dr. Moreau in D&D and right, just yeah. keep having the players run into differently mutated creatures. So I think uh, overall by the sound of it, all of us are saying that this is definitely a, a must-buy for your collection, even if you're not setting the game in Ravnica. Yeah, just as a toolbox for a DM, it's it's useful. And, I mean, as a player, you've got a lot of different options, both from the playable races and the extra um, subclasses for the characters. And you can even do, like, looking at some of the backgrounds that the different guild histories provide. You could possibly, in discussion with your DM, take some of those and work with your DM to have them apply somehow, even if you aren't in Ravnica. Now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and learn all about the golden child of D&D that is edition 3.5. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. The 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons is arguably one of the more popular iterations of the rules, but it's taken some time to get to where we are today. In honour of Art & Arcana, the book released October 23rd that showcases all the artwork and tells the evolving story of D&D over the years, we decided to take a look back at this hobby of ours ourselves and see where it started and how it's evolved over time. As established in our last article, while everyone liked 3.0 as an addition and were in love with the D20 system, there were glaring issues almost everyone identified with the 3.0 gameplay rules. Problems with rangers, bards, sorcerers, and druids were well known, and the 3.0 psionics rules had already established psionics are broken as a virtual law in D&D circles. Wizards of the Coast determined that the problems were too numerous to fix via small errata updates, but also felt they couldn't release a new version of D&D so quickly after the 3.0 release. Instead, they overhauled the rules and stamped them with a .5, creating a new half edition. The release of 3.5 happened in 2003, a mere three years after 3.0. By comparison, there were 11 years between the release of 2nd edition and 3rd edition. 
Like with second edition, there are too many specific changes to cover, and a lot of them are deep in the weeds of the 3.5 edition rules, so we'll touch on a few of the larger changes here. Major changes were made to the skills and progression with the aforementioned classes, greatly improving the utility for most. In general, classes had some abilities that would be useful initially and then fall off in utility. Many of those oversights were corrected. Also, the voluminous list of skills people had been dealing with were condensed, such as pickpocket being folded into sleight of hand, and some skills being removed and turned into class abilities. Some of the new feats were also rewritten to be clearer, as many had been taken directly from second edition, and some of the wording or mechanics just didn't really translate or were causing confusion because it was unclear which effects would stack with others. 3.5 did a small but significant change to damage reduction. In 3.0, creatures with damage reduction tended to have it universally. Every type of damage was reduced. 3.5 introduced specific ways to bypass certain damage reductions, opening ways for creatures to be vulnerable to certain attacks, and also introducing the now well-known properties of silvered weapons. The psionics rules were also overhauled. Four character classes were given access to psionics rather than two, and psionic abilities were made scalable, similar to 5th edition upcasting of a spell, rather than requiring a chain of psionic abilities be cast to increase effects. In general, those using psionics were more able to effectively increase the power of their abilities on pace with their characters. Throughout 3.5's tenure, the edition attracted a lot of praise. A lot of praise. Most of the corrections made to improve 3.0 were well received and reduced outright problems with many of the mechanics and classes. The number of ways to customize characters began to approach the options available in second edition, and whatever couldn't be achieved with the class abilities or prestige classes was usually covered by a feat. However, even fans will admit 3.5 isn't perfect. Psionics was reduced from pointless to subject of much controversy, and the debate about the viability of psionics rages to this day. Also, despite the upgrades to the classes, spellcasters in early levels were often liabilities in combat because of the way the magic system worked. Many campaigns started at third level or higher, so spellcasters would be able to use more than one or two spells before having to go for a nap and a sandwich. Other complaints mostly came from DMs. As more and more prestige classes were developed, some questions Questionable abilities and synergies started to emerge, and keeping track of what was official versus what was homebrewed became problematic. In fact, we tasked our research beholders with digging out the number of official prestige classes from all the splat books released during 3.5's run. They got to 349 before they asked, do we need to include epic prestige classes, which for those unaware are for the level 20 and over crowd. Prestige classes aside, the most frustrating thing for many as 3.5 matured was feet. Toward the end of 3.5's run, the number of official feats available for characters numbered in the thousands, and keeping track of them approached impossible. Despite those issues, which many agreed were nitpicky and had workarounds that were widely accepted as house rules, many still consider 3.5 the gold standard for fantasy RPGs that all other D&D editions and RPG systems are compared to, particularly ones that adhere to the D20 system. Active 3.5 games can still be found in many places, and many people credit the success of 5th edition to how well it mimics the best aspects of 3.5. Well, we didn't get to 5th edition from 3.5 without first going through 4th, which is fair to say probably one of the more controversial versions of D&D ever published, which we will dive into next week. For now, let's head over to the scrying pool and see what our listeners have to say. What news from the door? Dryness of Rohan! 
Two weeks ago, we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, are the publication issues with pre-ordered physical books just bad luck, or is Wizards shirking on QA because they aren't focused on hobby store retail as much? Do you have a favorite level in Dungeon of the Mad Mage? Except level 17, of course. Will you be running your players through the Mega Mountainous Mayhem? And tell us your third edition stories. Is there anything you miss from the good old days of D&D? Turkey Guy wrote in on Discord saying, After getting into Dungeon of the Mad Mage a bit in the last few days, my general comments are thus. Lots of really interesting content and ideas. Presentation of content still requires quite a bit of prep for the GM as far as what to present to the players and such. The Maps and Miscellany pack is almost required for prep just because it keeps you from having to flip back to the map to find rooms. It's a GM aid, not a player aid. It does a good job of presenting the information in such a way that you know you have to do the work as the GM while still being an excellent launching point, and I could totally see stealing individual or collections of rooms for other dungeons, and I'm only a chapter or two in. Carcer on Discord says, I don't think that the printing and distribution issues are an intentional push to drive us towards digital media due to the fact that D&D books are awesome and better not disappear. However, I do feel that many frustrated consumers will switch over anyway just so they can get their hands on that sweet content. Essentially, it doesn't matter if this is the case of intended digital takeover, it will happen eventually anyway. Mad Mage-wise, I love listening to the spoilers, however, I think my wife wants to buy me the book for Christmas. I have no problem waiting because my family will be the party who I drag through that dungeon. Lastly, thank you for another epic episode. Epic-sode? And Shift House of Pancakes also on Discord says, I don't have any Mad Mage feedback, but I do have access to D&D Beyond sharing. While less money thrown at QA might be the cause, the customer should always be the focus, especially when those customers are shelling out top dollar for books and are not a digital cheapskate buyer like me. Infinite Blowback, also on Discord, said the publication issues are likely nothing more than not doing a thorough job in QA. The real question is whether Wizards is trying to save money by cutting corners, or are they truly not anticipating some of the problems? I would love to regale you with 3rd edition tales, but sadly I cannot. The balance issues were well known by the time my group was considering a change from 2nd edition, and not long after, 3.5 came out. So we completely missed it. Active Nick on Discord says, Regarding what I miss from the good old days of D&D, I miss the ability to add new abilities and improve them past level 1. The 2e proficiencies and 3.5e skills offered a lot of player customization, and I find the skill system too shallow in 5e. Yeah, so just on that note there, I've often heard bounded accuracy being blamed effectively as the reason for that. Ostron, you're kind of like a little bit more up on the mathsy side of things than I am. Is that actually valid, or is that just an excuse um it's it's sort of a a side effect of bounded accuracy bounded accuracy mostly applies to ac and attack bonuses however in order to make leveling up simpler they tied the same system into the skills so effectively skills are limited by bounded accuracy even though the thing is with attack bonuses they have to match up again uh, with attack bonuses and damage they have to match up against a creature or player's ac and hit points so you have to make sure those stay in balance otherwise you're going to have a miserable time trying to balance an encounter since most of the time the dm is just wholesale making up the dcs that players are using in order to succeed or fail on skills or if they're 
counter rolling another skill, like somebody rolling deception and countering with insight, it isn't as much of a, or rather, there isn't as much of a need to limit the skill system, but they did it to make leveling up easier. Does that answer the question? Yeah, no, perfectly. It, it is not, like you said, directly the reason, but it is part of the reason why the skill system isn't as expansive as right. it was in earlier editions. I mean, yeah. a, w- a way to counter it would be that if the player and the DM both believe an individual character should still be getting better at a particular skill, even though mechanically their bonus is never going to increase, then the DM would just drop the DC against that particular character. However, that puts more work on the DM to track, like, okay, right, it's a DC 15 for everyone except this guy who only has a DC 10 because he's a you know, certified expert in tightrope walking or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I do think uh, as well that uh, this hobby of ours, just going by what Casa was saying, I think is probably the only time where somebody can ask the question, what did you do over the holidays? And you can reply with the phrase, I dragged my family through a dungeon <laughs> and not have it be as weird as it sounds. <laughs> Well, as long as you preface it with enough context clues, yeah. Even though I think with most of us, if someone said dungeon, our first instinct would be to think, oh, they were playing D&D, as opposed to, right, yeah. where is there a dungeon near me and why were you dragging them through it? As long as the word immediately preceding, I dragged my family through a dungeon, isn't officer then generally okay generally speaking and in general feedback chris cooper at lno underscore rebel on twitter says thank you for the show guys well you're welcome chris and that brings us to this week's community questions first have you gotten your hands on guildmaster's guide to ravnica what do you like what doesn't work for you and what are you planning to steal and also we know everyone loved 3.5 so instead tell us how you like fourth edition Was it an interestingly wild departure from the norm, or a total abomination that needed to be forgotten as soon as 5th edition came out? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 50th entry into our chronicle. Heroes Rise will be back with our 51st entry next week on December 5th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us at sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show is not just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Also, make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to our feeds at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com or by searching for us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the sound of what we do, we're always looking for new adventurers to join the party, and all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in our show notes. No matter your passion, scribing, dungeon mastering, or audio alchemy, we're sure to have a spot at our table for you. So all that remains is for us to thank the people who make this show possible. Our head scribe Baxter, our social media mage Ray Ray, our web wizard Gath Memvar, and of course our audio alchemists Mikey, Branwin, and Demosthenes. 
Special thanks go to Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com and Low of Lowe's Layer, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lowe's Layer. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. say Fortnite or Fortnite? Does it I, matter? Fortnite. Okay. Fortnite. I've heard some people say Fortnite, so I was wondering. Yeah, those people either had an accent or were wrong. Are now out and available at all good bookstores. Yeah. Darn it. Bookstores. Bookstores. <laughs> okay. Find it on your bookstores at bookstores.com <laughs> forward slash bookstores. I have to take another drink of water after that. <laughs> <laughs> Better than the vodka you were on last week. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, yeah, this is... Sorry, go on. Sorry. No, no go ahead. You can finish your thoughts. No, mm-hmm. no you finish your thoughts. Fine. All right, so in the errata, <laughs> I would... All right, on to Ravnica. So it was released digitally and in hobby stores on November 9th. On November 9th? Length <laughs> is not a date. Nope. <laughs> The release of 3.5 happened in 2013, a mere three years whoa, whoa, after... Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, oh. No, no, no. I said 2013, I realized that, sorry. You did. It came out after 4th edition. <laughs> exactly. I was about to say, wait a second. <laughs> this is Lennon D&D News. Uh, no, it's not. It's Short Rest Sync 1. Uh, this is Ostron, Short Rest Sync 2. This is Ryu, Short Rest Sync 3.